friends, welcome to the show. Today, my guest is Shy David. We are old friends from uh, the Williamsburg days of yoga. He is the co-founder and general manager of Kaltura, which is a major video streaming platform, and the CEO of Retrain.ai. Shy, it is a pleasure to see you. Michael, great to see you. Good afternoon in New York. Good, uh, pretty late night here in London. Yeah, yeah. Um, so first and foremost, how are you? How are things in London? In London, things are uh, relatively calm. Over the last uh, few weeks and months, I've uh, come to appreciate the British in a whole new way. I think that uh, over the years, they've internalized this idea of keeping calm and carrying on and i think that it shows now so mm. if you walk down the streets of north london things are eerily calm people are quiet but uh, a lot of people are going around without masks actually and uh, the sun has been shining for three weeks straight so i think that also gives people a little bit of a reason to smile yeah that's somewhat of an albatross in london yes and uh, i think that the pollution levels are down I don't know if the blue sky is because the pollution is down and there's no reason for the clouds to cluster or just a coincidence, but there's, there's a big disparity between the mounting body count uh, and the smiles on the faces of people you would see in the park. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, my last interview was with uh, Matt O'Dowd, and he's an astrophysicist, and I totally forgot to ask him about the, uh, the meta view of what's happening to our planet now that the planes have pretty much stopped, like cut by 90%, uh, very few cars on the road. Like I'm up here in the country and I can go for, you know, 10, 20 miles and not see a car. It's, it's kind of nice. I saw some headlines saying that the seismic activity is done, which is surprising, but the earth itself, Mother Earth is humming less in response to the quietness of the people, which like you wouldn't think that humans moving on the surface of the earth would have any sort of uh, such a strong demand on the movement of the planet itself. But apparently seismologists say now that the earth has been quieter than ever. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it's an important view, despite all of the, the uncertainty and loss and fear that's in the air, to also see the silver linings here that are uh, curious at the very least, like the the fact that the skies are clear in Beijing, just that yeah. should be a, a, a front page headline for at least a day. Yes, and I saw pictures from uh, Northern and France and pictures from Northern India, where in some segments of the country, they can now see the Himalayas mm -hmm. 150 kilometers away use that's been hidden for more than a hundred years now mm -hmm. yeah something to the the 2020 clear sight <laughs> even though a uh, few people could see this version of that clarity yes. coming so a, a bit of our history like we met way back in the day at go yoga on yep. north six North 6th Street in Williamsburg, in the uh, the mini mall. Yes, and uh, Go Yoga was probably the first 
yoga studio as we know yoga studios to be now right there was a place that uh, took yoga out of uh, the gym and combined both asana and dharma and uh, it was a phenomenal space in early williamsburg when williamsburg was still williamsburg when the mini mall was the only mall mm-hmm. in town before the city banks and the apple stores and the starbucks oh my god yeah golden era uh, and I think probably one of the first yoga centers in Williamsburg, which uh, seems like only yesterday. I'm wondering now with the um, the coronavirus in the city and how quiet it is there, what the hell's going to happen to to Brooklyn real estate? And will it be a, a possibility for artists to come back there again in a meaningful way? Yeah, probably last time I was there was a few months ago, but uh, I think the, the, it was almost unrecognizable, just as huge high-rises and shops. Uh, Williamsburg now looks like Soho. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I doubt that artists are coming anytime soon. My wife had a studio right across the, around the corner from where Go used to be, and she needed to move to the undeveloped part of Williamsburg across the BQE, and then a few years she needed to move from there to Bushwick, and the artists have been receding. Uh, but you're right; maybe now they're going to come back. <laughs> yeah, the prices I'm seeing for a studio and one-bedroom apartments, and you know, even Clinton Hill, like, oh wow, I could, I could actually afford that now. Yeah, but they keep doing that; they redistrict it and call it East Williamsburg, and just keep pushing exactly. that line out bit by bit. Um, so since. Uh, since we met back then, you've you've kept your practice. I mean, I, I've been teaching online, and I, I see you there. And uh, over the years, as our paths have, have been braided together, um, you've been in front of a, of a major company called Kaltura. And uh, the, the amount of nourishment that people are getting now through the video connections just to see another human face and to continue to work and to continue to share and provide education is unprecedented i mean it must feel um a, a pretty prescient to be on this side of the the tech and that company and now beginning to move on into a new frontier but um how, how did you birth kaltura uh, so Kultura was started by uh, myself and three other entrepreneurs, Ron, who was our uh, chairman and CEO, uh, Michal, Dr. Michal Tsur, uh, whom I met at uh, the Yale Information Society project, who was uh, in her last role with us, uh, our general manager for the enterprise business, and Ranatam, who was our CTO. Before us was first and foremost friends. And uh, many years ago, probably... Uh, 13, almost 14 years ago, we met in a social context. Ron and I were friends from high school. Michal and I were uh, colleagues in our postdoc work in Iran. Uh, we knew through another friend. And we had a strong sense that something was changing in the area of tech, having been watching a lot of open systems come into being. Wikipedia was uh, really starting to happen in large scale. YouTube was starting to happen. Um, 
And we understood and, and open source systems were coming into being and we understood that there was a change in the world in the way large groups of people were coming together to build information technology. Uh, and we had a strong sense, it was a thesis more than a sense, I would say, that the next era of media is going to be along the same lines, that what happened to encyclopedias with Wikipedia was what happened to journalism with blogging. The same is destined to happen in the era of media. None of us came from the media industry, so uh, we had the rudeness or the... Uh, audacity to imagine a new future for that type of technology. And we thought that if we could have a platform that would allow people to collaborate in media, to load files and share them, to share edits, to create different rough cuts, then that would be a good thing. So kind of creating the Wikipedia for video, if you will. Mm. And that was our first product out to the market. We called it a collaborative editor where different people could load clips and you had a very rudimentary uh, nonlinear editor and people could just create movies and jam along. Um, and we understood that um, that was nice. We called some of our friends within the industry, both media industry, sports, people we knew and said, hey, we're building this. If we build it, will you buy one? And uh, people liked it. And we sold 10 systems, sold quote unquote, with some air quotes, because at that point we didn't have a product or we didn't have anything. We had a vision, we had a few PowerPoint slides, but that was enough to get people excited because people saw what had happened with text and they all realized that video was the next thing. And um, the environment was good for that because the iPhone just came out. Uh, and at that point, YouTube uh, was acquired by Google. So people were beginning to realize. So this is 2007? This was 2000, and we, we conceptualized the company in 2006, and in 2007, those changes uh, started to happen. What people don't realize today is that when the iPhone came out, they did not have video recording capabilities. And I say that to people, and they're like, what do you mean? The iPhone always had a video camera. No, the iPhone 1, iPhone 2 did not have that. They also didn't have an app store. It only had like a camera app, and there was no way to install it. But it was fairly clear that 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 was coming. And all of a sudden, hundreds of millions of people a few years later had the means of production of video in their pocket. So the environment was good for that. But at the same time, we realized pretty quickly that this notion of creating a layer of collaboration around the video uh, was very much in demand, but it relied on the basics that were not yet there. The capability to actually record the video on a mobile device, to upload it, to secure it, to play it on any device. Those were things that were necessary conditions to be able to offer higher levels of collaboration. And at that point, 2007, 2008, video didn't need to work very smoothly. Android then came out, but if you shot the movie on an iPhone, you couldn't see it on an Android, you couldn't see it on a PC. Uh, there were no clear standards for security of video. A lot of video was based on Flash, if you remember that technology. Uh, and then Apple later, uh, Steve Jobs hated Flash and, and basically declared a war on Flash. So that created bifurcation of standards. So we spent a lot of the next few years on building the basics because we went to all of our first customers and they said, video collaboration tools are great, but what about security? What about access control? What about authentication? What about um, 
all the quote-unquote boring things that that we need to solve for. And you have to remember that at that point, text or the textual web had probably a, almost a 20-year history. So how do you secure a file? How do you store that file? How do you measure a page view? Those were standards that were fairly well developed. When it came to video, none of that existed. So how do you upload? How do you store? How do you measure? How do you monetize? There was a lot of standards that needed to be developed. And one of the first things that we did was that we realized this was going to be a bigger problem than just one company to solve. And we convinced something that we called the Open Video Alliance. Uh, we called some of our friends at the Mozilla Foundation, some of our friends at the Wikimedia Foundation, our alma mater at places like NYU. And we actually brought together about a thousand people for the first open video conference in New York City to talk about that problem and to start setting standards for open video so that larger groups of people could build the technology with open standards in an open way. And that was the first kind of boost for the company. So that kind of set the tone for the next few years. Uh, and it became clear to us that if that was our mission, which you know was different than the mission we started the company with, but if the mission would be to build the first open video system, that's going to be a fairly long journey because it was just a lot of work mm -hmm. to support all these use cases, to support all the devices, to support the different standard internationalization, accessibility, more and more and more aspects of the video streaming problem. And it became apparent that that's going to be a big problem to solve. That's going to require a lot of money, a lot of people. And we realized that we are probably solving a billion dollar problem. Uh, and we started the series of fundraising first with uh, VCs and later in our last uh, in the last few strategic rounds, we brought strategic investors like Intel, SAP, Nokia, and later Goldman Sachs to be able to help fund and build this. Uh, in hindsight, you know, today, a lot of those early decisions seem pretty obvious. Yes, of course, video is going to be important. Of course, people want to use video more. Of course, everybody carries a HD recorder in their pocket. Of course, everybody has flat screens. Uh, in their living rooms, none of that was obvious uh, 13 or 10 or even uh, 7 or 5 years ago. But we happened to, to chance upon this. And uh, if there's one thing I learned from it is that um, you want to solve a problem, you better solve a big problem. And, and video is a big problem. And we were very lucky to be early innovators in that and became one of the dominant companies in the world to be able to solve problems like that. And I think that in the last few weeks, I think uh, the importance of these types of systems became quite apparent to everybody, even the non-believers now all of a sudden mm -hmm. believe. Yeah, everybody knows what uh, it means to have a clear portal to someone else to share an idea, to yep. connect. I think it, it, it falls down on... Uh, fundamental principles and I sometimes used to even start my corporate presentations with this notion that humans by default are multimedia creatures you know the the legend goes and I don't know if it's true or not but there must be some grain of truth to it that when they discovered the first cave paintings um, on the caves on the border between uh, France and Spain it was a Hard to understand at first why some rooms had more paintings than others. And upon research, 
it became clear that the areas where the paintings were more prevalent were areas that also had better acoustics. Those are the places where the early humans would congregate, especially in the winter, light up a fire, draw to the firelight, beat their drums, and enjoy the first uh, versions of YouTube, if you will. So people are drawn to these multimedia experiences. Video is a very bandwidth-rich, but a very um, emotionally uh, satisfying medium. Mm -hmm. And... And I think that people gravitate towards moving images. You can look at how kids use it, but you can also think about employees that need to learn a new subject or uh, students that are learning to master a new topic or anybody that wants to teach. You know, you, you mentioned online yoga now, which is, I think, booming. Is it the same as the real thing? No. But is it better than reading about it in manual? Probably, yes. Um, yeah, the, the speed of learning between I've heard about uh, what it takes to be an airplane mechanic and in the old days having to go through this massive manual page by page with these two-dimensional diagrams and now with the VR learning tools they can you know be projected into this space where they can actually see 3d renderings of the parts yep. and it's far faster for sure and, and I think that, you know, the videos we see today is probably kind of some intermediate phase because VR, AR, co-location, um, I think are kind of the obvious next steps to that. Uh, and to some extent, you know, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If you're coming from the video streaming world, then uh, everything has the potential to become a terminal for video or a multimedia-rich experience. So... A uh, company like Cultura looks at connected cars, for example, self-driving cars. A self-driving car is a TV on wheels, essentially, right? What are you going to do if you're not, if you're going to commute, not driving? What are you going to do? You're probably going to watch a screen. Work on the way uh, to work. And uh, and I think that when you think about VR, you know, to get a proper VR experience, you probably need anywhere between four and sixteen tiles of HD video around you to create that immersion. So if we discussed earlier how hard it was to solve the one single screen video problem, imagine multiplying that problem by 10. So so there's years of innovation ahead. And uh, I don't think that uh, tomorrow morning, everybody's going to walk around with those uh, heads up displays. But then again, two months ago, we didn't think everybody was going to wear masks. So mm -hmm. I think things uh, change pretty rapidly. Yeah, if they can solve the nausea problem with VR. That'll yeah. be a miracle. So I think that I think there's a lot of innovation coming uh, in those areas, but uh, culture was a good run, uh, and uh, I've spent uh, about 13 years in that. Made a lot of good friends, both with my co-founders, who are all still there, uh, and a lot of customers. The company had uh, worldwide success. We had offices in seven different cities about 450 people working for the company, over a thousand clients, um, very fast growing revenue. So it was quite a wild run, but uh, now I'm focused on a different project because I think that uh, there are other big problems to solve. I think that the video problem, as we said, is not completely solved and there's uh, still years of innovation ahead. But I feel that for me, it was time to let this baby uh, 
take its next step on its own. We hired very talented management to continue to run the company. I stay on the company's board to, and I'm learning the difference between steering and management. So mm-hmm. my job now is to steer, not to manage the day to day. And the company is doing great with its new management. Right, congratulations. It's a massive, massive step. So the, but before we, we move on to other topics, one thing I want to remind you, because you've seen Culturas Growth from the inside, you, you came to one of our uh, corporate retreats when we were just uh, an eight-person company, and then later again, we were a hundred-person company. And there's one thing that we always remembered uh, is that as important as video is and as emotionally satisfying a video experience could be, it doesn't replace the importance of getting face-to-face and moving your body and whatnot. So even for us as a evangelist of video communication, it was always important for our own practice to get the people together. And, and uh, I remember the, the times that you came to visit us and guide us in those were special moments mm-hmm. for the company. Yeah, I remember. It was a, thank you for that opportunity. This new project with Retrain AI um, I remember when you were first sharing with me about it, the how fast technology is moving, um, how powerful AI is becoming, and generations that may be uh, out of jobs that are no longer necessary for a human to do anymore. Just like, you know, 20 years ago, we couldn't imagine web, uh, web design as a a career or um, half the jobs that exist now just didn't exist before so in this frontier of helping um, the older generations be retrained and find ways of, of still working in a meaningful way how, how does retrain AI speak to that need so retrain.ai is now a new startup company. It's still kind of in stealth mode, uh, very early stages, but it's a company that has uh, big ambitions. And those ambitions or the vision for the company uh, stems from a pre-COVID world, but gets accelerated in a post-COVID world by the observation that technology is dramatically changing the human landscape around us. And that might seem like this truism, okay, that's pretty trivial, but if we look at uh, some fundamental metrics, let's look at uh, the Fortune 100 list, for example, right? or even the Fortune 10 list. What are the biggest companies in the world? If you looked at that list 30 years ago, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, the biggest companies in the world were all energy companies, financial services, or retail, right? It was the Walmarts of the world, uh, it was the Bank of Americas of the world, maybe an automotive company like a Ford Motor Company, whatnot. If you look at the five biggest, most influential, richest companies today, those would probably be Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, etc. So this trend of technology beginning to dominate the everydayness is becoming uh, not only uh, kind of a random observation, but it has economics to back it up. It's bigger companies that are taking a bigger share and owning more technology, and that technology becomes more and more and more prevalent. Again, you can look at the 
connections that each of us has with our cell phone. We are we used to be dependent on Google for a couple of hours of web searches a day. Now, if you carry an Android phone, you carry Google or Apple in your pocket, right? If you're thinking about this post-COVID world, you know, a lot of people now are dependent on Amazon. A lot of people couldn't finish their day without Netflix. Mm -hmm. So we're developing this symbiotic connection to relatively few companies. And all of those companies, one of the things that unites all of these companies, they're investing very, very heavily in artificial intelligence. So I think that gives us a little bit of a window uh, of what's to come. And we're hearing that uh, all the time in the news. The idea that machines are going to replace humans and are going to disrupt the workforce is a very old idea. There's hundreds of years of history to this problem of the future of work. So the future of work for many, many years stayed in the future. And there's a very interesting history uh, with probably some very uh, colorful examples from the first industrial revolution where um, there was a whole groups dedicated to the destruction of technology, namely the Luddites. And there was major social upheaval for industries where technology was replacing people with the uh, meal industry being a good example, the um, garment industry being a good example. Whole areas of the economy where automation had destroyed a lot of jobs and the people that were displaced from that uh, took a long time to find new places or new uh, patterns in the economy to get assimilated into. The history, though, might or might not be a good uh, example of what's going to come in the future, because in the past, every time that a technological revolution like that happened, the overall number of jobs that got created, the overall size of the economy, eventually, and sometimes it took years, but eventually grew beyond what was before. And if there was like a big fear of technological unemployment, to date, that has never happened, right? Mm -hmm. There was never a time in history that over time, people didn't have a job. Mm -hmm. At the turn of the 20th century in the US, for example, more than 50% of the people worked in agriculture. And today, less than 3% of the people work in agriculture. That doesn't mean that 47% of the people became unemployed. In fact, uh, just before the virus hit, a few months ago, is unemployment was at historically low, 3.5% in many of the developed countries, including the UK and the US. For, for years, economists thought that there couldn't be unemployment lower than 5%. Mm -hmm. And in the last few years, we saw that it actually dropped below 4%. So it's not clear that automation alone uh, could displace people. And yet at the same time, AI is the first time in history where people are displaced not only from uh, blue-collar jobs, but also from white-collar jobs. A lot of people in uh, all strands of the industry are being displaced. And Retrain.ai started with the observation that there's a misconception about the way that that process happens. You hear the headlines in the newspapers, and people are very excited talking about things like self-driving cars and um, automated systems like that. That's maybe a sexy example, but that is not the reality of the next few years. There's not going to be mass displacement of drivers anytime in the next three, five, seven, probably 10 years, because there's 
technological barriers, regulatory barriers. Is it coming? Is it 20 years from now, 30 years from now, you're going to see humans driving cars? Maybe just for sports. It's going to be like an extreme sport, mm. right? But are you going to see massive fleets of self-driving cars and trucks running in the streets of London or New York City in the next three or four years? Absolutely not. So there's a gap between the perception of the public about, oh, robots are coming for your job on one hand, and on the other hand, you know, robots are not really coming from your job anytime soon. So, so, so where does that gap exist? It exists in the fact that a lot of very mundane jobs are being destroyed and nobody's talking about it. So think about two relatively, quote-unquote, boring industries, but credit rating and call centers. Those are industries that employ many, many people. When you introduce automation, it's not just about introducing a self-driving car. It's about introducing an algorithm that could do credit evaluation in 30 seconds that normally took the credit department in your bank 30 days to do, right? Or it's introducing an automatic voice response systems in the call center so that when you call for customer service or to track a package or for whatever other reason to change a flight with your airline, uh, there's an automated system instead of a person there. A cynic could look at AI and to look at all those hot companies in Silicon Valley that are all talking about AI and translate each and every one of those business plans into a number of how many people are you going to displace? I have an automated food ordering system. I have a self-driving car. I have a call center optimization software, whatever that AI software would be. The cynic could look at that and say, oh, what you're really doing is you're destroying jobs. Uh, and what are all these people going to do? So what retrain.ai wants to do is to look at all of those areas and make one big observation, which is every time jobs are being destroyed, other jobs are actually being created. Now, it's true that in a particular segment of the market, the number of jobs that's being created might be smaller in number than the number of jobs that are being destroyed. But at the same time, a whole new category of jobs are being created. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Think about drones, for example. All the big companies are now experimenting with drone delivery. So Amazon is doing it and FedEx is doing it and whatnot. Think about drone operation as something I would call in this conversation, a job of the future. That includes drone piloting, new modes of customer service, air traffic control, security, safety, how many people does an Amazon like that need to hire in order to operate its fleet of drones? I would venture to say it's tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people over the next few years. Uh, and look at drone operation as a job of the future. Look at next generation call centers as a job of the future. Look at the people that are working alongside AI in credit rating agencies or banks as a job of the future, because a lot of the people that have implemented first-generation AI, they realize that the machines cannot work alone. So the future that I see is a future where people and machines work one along the other, right? It's not that robots are coming for your job tomorrow and going to displace you. It's that automation is the sign of the times. And the skill set that is required to work alongside the machines is very different than the skill sets of the people that are being displaced. So retrain.ai is focused on that problem. It's gonna be able to systematically identify jobs of the future, 
that's going to be able to apply that same very technology that's creating the displacement to begin with, that same set of technologies, including AI, machine learning, virtual reality, virtual voice assistance, those same tools could be used to identify those jobs. Those same tools could be used in order to assess the skill set and the aptitude of people that have been displaced. And some of those people could be unemployed. Some of those people could be still employed within jobs that are subject to elimination. And third and, and last and importantly, Britrain.ai is going to work with a network of partners to find the training requisite to upskill the workforce in ways that are going to allow people that are displaced to fill in those jobs of the future. So our objective would be to put a million people back in jobs in the first five years uh, by this kind of three-pronged approach. And, and I'm very excited that the technology exists. You know, we don't need to invent anything. Jeff Bezos is very famous in saying that when he invented Amazon, he didn't need to invent the internet and he didn't need to invent the U.S. Postal Service. The foundations is there. And Retrain.ai doesn't need to invent anything specific, doesn't need to invent AI, doesn't need to invent uh, assessment protocols, it doesn't need to invent training programs. What it's going to do and what it's developing is a platform that allows us to tie all those loose ends into a system that systematically creates jobs rather than destroys them. Mm. So that's what I'm focusing on. Fantastic. Fantastic. I was at a uh, event a few years ago when I came back from Paris and one of the uh, heads of Google was giving a, a talk about AI waking up. Yep. And he says, it's not a matter of if, but when. Yep. And from his perspective, and many of his colleagues, the most important thing to entrain into AI is the importance of human happiness. How do you see that playing a powerful role in this uh, kind of changing of the guard from the automated to, you know, reskilling people who had done those jobs before? I think I think it's a very good point, and I think that uh, you know, on the cynical or bleak version of the futures and. Uh, robots are coming for our jobs. There's not going to be enough work for humans to do, and humans would forever be relegated to a smaller and smaller part of the workforce. I think in the more optimistic version of that, we realize that uh, standing in the sun and um, tending to tobacco leaves uh, is not a great job, and, and now tractor trailers do it. And by the same token, if you're a lawyer, and you're sitting in some basement, even you might be working for 40 or $50 an hour, but you're sitting in the basement and going over thousands of documents uh, and proceedings for a, for a trial, that's also not the great thing to do. So I think that the version that I see is that the robots, and, and in this conversation we can use the word AI and, and robot almost interchangeably, but the robots, the AI, the machine learning, whatever, and we can talk about the differences between all of these different technologies, but all of the automation writ large, at least in the initial phases, is going to take the mundane type of work, and it's going to leave for the humans the more creative aspects of the work, and it's going to free the humans to do things that have to do 
with what humans are better at, which is collaboration and oversight and direction and whatnot. Now, of course, as the AI, quote unquote, uh, from what you heard from Google this day, why AI is going to wake up, there's a big question of could AI be creative? And there's been very sophisticated algorithms that came um, to the public recently about AI that could actually write stories, even write music. And I don't know of any AI that could teach yoga, but somebody's probably working on that too. Uh, I think that poses a challenge, but I'm with the optimism that I think that it's going to force the humans to continue and evolve. And maybe a good example of that we can see in the world of chess or Go playing. First, people were devastated that now algorithms can beat them. You know, what's the point of playing chess if, if your kid's iPad can beat you any day of the week? But it turns out that the best uh, teams in the world are actually combinations of human and machine. Uh, and that when a grandmaster could uh, do a computer-assisted game, they could actually play better than a human or better than a computer. So th this is a compelling front here. You know, I, I'm a massive science fiction fan, and, and I know that the science fiction writers, you know, channel these ideas and outcomes that the scientists, uh, the political structures try to go, okay, well, how do we leverage that now that this, this dream has been elucidated? How do we run with it for our own purposes? Yes. So what I wanted to ask at this juncture is the disparity that can happen from people who can be enhanced with AI, like I'm wearing Google contacts or I have an implant that augments my consciousness with the digital omniscience of Google. Uh, I can see what my girlfriend types in a message and beams it onto my, my retina, uh, don't forget the milk. You know, how this is likely to happen or unlikely to happen from your perspective, where there could be that disparity amongst the people who have the capacity for that augmentation and those who don't. Uh, I think the risk is very real. And I think that that augmentation is not yet with physical, biological enhancements, but it's already happening. The people that have a new, more modern phone, faster broadband connection uh, are already digitally enhanced. And I think now with COVID, we've seen that the digital divide uh, is, uh, is only getting larger and larger. We think about, oh, no problem, you know, kids could learn from home and we can do yoga from home and whatnot. But what's the bandwidth penetration in the U.S.? How many homes in the U.S. are connected to bandwidths, to, to high bandwidths? In our imagination, it's, oh, everybody. Mm -hmm. The reality is, no, it's not. It's probably, I want to say that in the U.S. it's less than 70%, maybe it's less than 60%. In more developed countries like South Korea, it's probably 80 to 90%. There's a big disparity between urban and rural areas and whatnot. So there's no online yoga and online learning and Zooming with your friends if you have a dial-up connection, right? That's a reality of 30% of Americans right now, as an example. So in some sense, that, that disparity exists. If you want to take it all the way to dystopia, then I think the most frightening version of it is uh, Yuval Noah Harari, who says that the enhanced humans are actually over time going to be a different species. Because if in the, when we do our dichotomies of kind of animal kingdom, we distinguish between species as people that intermingle and intermate, 
over time, the people that are going to be enhanced are not going to even want to mingle with the people that are not. And over time, they become a different species, right? They have brain implants, they have better memories, they have better vision, they have augmented capabilities, whether those are physically embedded in their bodies or not. Um, and that might sound like a, a, a bad dream, but if you look at uh, education level and the way that people hook up today, for example, based on education level, you're already starting to see a very strong divide. So I think that that's a very real risk that people run. And it goes back to an earlier point, which is it only uh, enhances the point we were discussing earlier about how important it is to use those same tools in order to teach the people the capabilities to work alongside the machine. And I think that that's maybe the intermediary point. You know, in the extreme version, it's about people possessing biological or technological capabilities on their bodies, whether inside their bodies or closely on their bodies or in their homes, right? But I think there's a preliminary version of that. Even if it's not about having the technology embedded in you, it's the capability to use that technology. If you do not know how to use a search engine, and if you cannot talk to the machines, and if you don't know anything about technology over time, your prospects are lower and lower and lower. And I think that that's where the digital divide really starts. And I think that if you contrast that to the uh, precept of the Industrial Revolution, for example, when in an agrarian society, the people that came from an agrarian society into an industrialized society, at least they had a chance to learn those new skills. Now, sometimes they were coerced and sometimes they became wage laborers because they lost their land. It definitely wasn't a pleasant experience. But at least they had the capability to do it. Today, if you want to go work for some of these uh, tech companies, you're not going to get the interview, right? It's not that anybody who just chooses to do so could go work for Google. So I think that uh, one of the decision points ahead of us is, do we have the chance still to give people the capability to be able to work alongside the machines? And then the secondary question is what you're asking, which is, what do we do in order to tackle that gap between the haves and the have-nots mm-hmm. when we're talking about augmentation? And, and yes, I agree with you, the, the science fiction realm, a lot of people kind of show us what those extreme versions could be. Mm-hmm. Well, the Retrain AI project feels like a, a, a compassionate edge to fill that gap. And I think that I think there's a lot of backlash within the technology company with the talent. You know, uh, being able to hire AI engineers, for example, today is almost impossible, right? Because they have job offers. The good ones have job offers at Facebook and at Google and at Apple and all of those. But those same engineers are, are waking up to a world that they are beginning to realize what the dangers are. So I think there's a lot of passion within that community, and I'm hoping that a lot of people would want to join forces with us because they understand there's an opportunity to take the skills that they have and uh, the base camp level of education that they have and really climb a different summit and just creating more profit for Google shareholders or Amazon shareholders mm-hmm. or Facebook shareholders. What do you see as the dangers? The dangers in, in the world? I think that the danger is that very few people are going to be able to control an ever-growing percentage 
of the compute resources and, and the AI. It's important to recognize that the AI has two different scarce resources associated with it. One is the algorithms themselves that are getting better, and some of them have been publicly shared, and some of them remain proprietary. That's one prerequisite for a good AI is to have good algorithms. The second is to have tremendous amount of compute power. In order to train an AI system, a machine learning system, you need tremendous amount of computing power. So if you want to train an AI system to drive a car, you have to first have to train it to recognize video and images. And to train it video and images, you need tremendous amounts of data. And you need to run those simulations. The AI teaches itself by reviewing millions and billions and trillions of images. That requires tremendous amount of compute power that today just very few companies or maybe very few governments have. But it's already at the point, this is not some future version of it, it's already at the point. I've heard colleagues in academia, for example, that decided to go switch to industry and go work for Google or not, uh, being lured to those companies by the promise of being able to tap into a pool of compute resources. So if you're a researcher and you have a brilliant algorithm and you work for an academic institute, you can only get so many teraflops of compute power. You go to Google and say, oh, why don't you tap into our cloud where you can run your algorithms wild? That is one of the most alluring things a data scientist can hear. Uh, and if you run that clock a little fast forward, then in a few years from now, there's going to be very few organizations around the world. Probably the US government, Chinese government, Google, Facebook, Apple, maybe a few other ones. So there's going to be a handful of organizations that actually have the compute power to be able to even run the more sophisticated algorithms like that. So that's a real danger. The danger is that uh, too few people are going to control too valuable resources, and that's going to create a digital moat, if you will, that the rest of us couldn't even cross. Mm -hmm. and, and that's not just me saying it. A lot of people are understanding that. I think one exception to that is uh, OpenAI started by uh, Elon Musk and Sam Altman, which is uh, attempting to be able to put in the public domain those algorithms and to be able to harness the power of uh, organizations that want to be part of a larger consortium of companies that wants to ensure that innovation in AI remains within the control of humanity writ large rather than in the hands of a very select group of people, governments, and, and companies. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the, the anthropomorphizing of AI, and these ideas of Google, Facebook, China, USA, um, Amazon, having these AI titans that could be in conflict with one another for dominance. Is this, a, uh, is this part of the danger of it being closed off to the rest of us, but these, these corporate and political powers have them but barely have control? I think so. I think, that, I think that's a real danger, and I think that that danger uh, has been explored both in science fiction and more recently in, in academia uh, around the point which is in science fiction has become known as the singularity, the point where... Mm. AI becomes so smart that it becomes a super intelligence. And the argument goes that once you've developed this uh, super intelligence, you apply that same super intelligence into the task of further developing its own intelligence. 
And if you could do that, then you're getting to this point where you reach exponential growth. Theoretically, if that is correct, then the people that are going to reach that point first are going to have an inordinate advantage because once you reach that singularity and when you reach super intelligence and you use your own super intelligence that you just control to further develop the super intelligence and nobody can ever catch you and supposedly there's a very very large arms race uh, that's that's going on around that uh, authors that's been exploring that uh, most recently i think in the most uh, coherent way is nick bostrom over at oxford and uh, he actually has a book called super intelligence which is highly recommended um but that's definitely uh, a risk. And then the, the other side of the same coin, uh, what you're alluding to is kind of runaway risk. What happens if those people think they're going to control that, but that AI runs amok, right? And, and now that super intelligence decides that it no longer needs us or not. There's a very famous thought experiment about the AI who's programmed to manufacture paper clips. And the AI is using every available resource to manufacture paper clips. And then it realizes that the people that designed it and all the humans around it and whatnot are just consuming resources that otherwise could be harnessed for the manufacture of paper clips. And it decides that it would be get better mm-hmm. to just eliminate everybody else for the purpose of creating paper clips. See. Uh, and then the, back to the idea of ingraining into AI the importance of human happiness, taking that as a factor, as if we say, hey, uh, AI, we have a problem called global warming, and AI goes, well, the planet has a human problem that has created this, that it could uh, turn back around on us in that way to solve the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that's, that's I think, a philosophical question more than a technological question. you could trace it all the way back to Asimov's three rules of robotics, right? And uh, and I think that uh, I don't think there's an easy answer for that because if you want to program human happiness or human well-being is maybe an even grander scheme into the programming of AI, then soon enough you discover that you're making a lot of assumptions around what human happiness is. And which version of happiness are you talking about? Yeah. Is that the maximum amount of happiness for the maximum amount of people? Then the, the the flip side of that problem you were saying about we solve global warming by eliminating the people, the flip side of that is kind of the version in the movie Wally, where robots do all the jobs and humans just eat hamburgers and float in, in pools uh, and being fest, uh, fed by, uh, by tubes. So it's not clear that... Uh, so that creates more happiness. Um, but I think that the, 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 sh- the short version is that those are very real problems. And I think that to even be able to talk about these problems, we need to A, have more people have access to the technology, B, make the technology itself be more uh, understandable by people. Uh, giving more people access to the algorithm, giving more people access to the computing resources that are necessary, and keeping more people in the loop of working with the machines. And I think that, that you know, in tonight's conversation, we're talking a lot about uh, building those AI systems and working alongside those AI systems. Those are two distinct, I think, layers. And I think that both of them are important. 
And I think that when I think about the mission of retrain.ai, our objective is not to take displaced drivers and turn them into data scientists. Our first objective is to be able to take displaced drivers and give them a new type of job if driving is no longer needed. That type of job is not necessarily working for Google creating self-driving cars. And I think that's an important distinction. And I think that a lot of early programs and future work had fallen into that rabbit hole of saying, oh, automation is destroying jobs. Let's train more people in creating automation systems. That is a, an illogical jump, uh, which I think we need to avoid. Mm-hmm. And then there's the, you can't train an old dog to do new tricks. Right. And there's also probably a skill set problem and an aptitude problem. And, um, you know, I don't think we have time to get into politics now, but you definitely see it in the U.S. has been such a big uh, runaway presidency that is dismissing science and dismissing technology. Oh, I haven't heard about this. What are you talking about? (laughs) A whole attitude about uh, that. So I think that the first thing we need to do is, is give people a little bit of uh, the background and and to strengthen STEM and to strengthen um, the foundations that people uh, would even have a standing chance in being able to participate in that future economy of the future. I think just an interesting statistic that comes to my mind, this is not some far-fetched future problem. And again, this is not about drivers no longer driving cars. That's a problem we might have in 10 or 15 years from now. This is about, according to recent estimates from the World Economic Forum and big research organizations like PwC, this is probably about 100 million jobs in the world right now that are going to be eliminated in the next few years due to automation. So this is a 2020 problem. Enter COVID-19, that problem might be three or four or five times as big. 17 million people unemployed in America right now, many of them from retail, from service industry, uh, from transportation, from entertainment. Those jobs are not going to be created again overnight. What are all these people going to do? So I think part of the reason I'm focusing my time on trying to solve this problem right now, and the virus is just a huge wake-up call that everything we plan at Retrain needs to be done 10 times as fast, is we need to help these people find new jobs. And those jobs are not necessarily going to be the old jobs. I think a crisis is going to accelerate a lot of trends that were happening anyway. And I think that if many restaurants, for example, now moved into a takeaway, for example, right? It doesn't take a genius to figure out that they're going to be able to introduce automation now because if it's less about the human touch and the customers are not necessarily coming in to eat with you or spend time with you then the more automated you can make the process the more economic sense it makes so restaurants that never would have considered automation would now consider it right mm-hmm. mcdonald's has recently acquired an ai company uh, and you're like what's what does mcdonald have to do with ai well it turns out that if AI can help McDonald's predict what the customers want and be able to build custom orders for them and be able to help them finish their ordering faster for McDonald's. I could do that by 10 or 15%. 
probably worth buying an AI company for hundreds of millions of dollars. So we're going to start seeing that type of change in every single industry. And I think that the global pandemic is only going to dramatically accelerate that in pretty meaningful ways. Yeah, necessity is the mother of invention. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Shai, we're going to leave it there. We are out of time. And uh, it's always good to see you and uh, speak about such high ideas that are being actualized. Crazy time. Absolutely crazy times, Michael. Thank you so much. It's been uh, uh, fantastic talking. You've always uh, helped me kind of open the mind with the guidance and teaching. And uh, I hope that uh, soon enough we can uh, meet in person at this video. I'm an optimist, so I think that humans are going to adapt pretty rapidly. I think that we're going to have a vaccine. I think that uh, this is uh, definitely going to change the world in meaningful ways. And at the same time, uh, Humans have suffered through a lot and uh, always came out stronger. So I hope that it's an opportunity for us to remember all the good things that can come out of it. So I'm fairly certain that soon enough we'll be flying again and meeting people in person again. Yes. We might have our masks on, but uh, I don't think that the end of the world is coming. And uh, when we all emerge from our uh, home-based bunkers, I'm busy helping people uh, refine their jobs, and you're busy helping them open up their hearts and their minds. So I'm sure we'll meet in person very soon. Yeah, may it be so. Thank you so much, and uh, have a great night. Thank you. <laughs>